0: So, hi, my name is Susie. I'm one of the pastors at New Philly, actually in our campus in Seoul. And I rarely get a chance to make a prison break and, like, just come down here uh, to worship with you guys. It's been a while since I've been here on a Sunday, so I'm really, really happy to be here. It's so awesome to see so many new faces. You guys are probably not new, but I'm new, and I haven't met you since last time. But I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, Hmm, hmm. Um, so today I have a word for you uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 4, and as we turn there, you know, in our devices or um, in, our phone, uh, in our phones or our Bibles, um, I want to give a disclaimer. Like, So today's message, I'm preaching it to myself as much as I'm preaching it to y'all. Uh, this is something that I personally needed to hear. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I sound kind of hoarse after singing my lungs out. Um. Yes. Yeah, so it's something that I personally needed to hear. Something that I personally needed to be reminded of. And so, just as much as I'm preaching it to you, I'm also preaching it to myself. And so today's text it comes from Second Timothy, chapter four, and we're going to be going through verses one through eight. And I have some nifty slides for you guys today. If it works, that would be great. Does it? Yes, yes. My phone is not, anyway, not cooperating. I'm going to have to keep looking back and forth. Okay. Um, Let's read through this together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So, it's one slide ahead. Um today's message is titled The Witness of Perseverance. The Witness of Perseverance. This was a message that I felt God highlighting to me, especially in our day and age when it is very easy to trumpet the immediate, the flashy, the overnight success kind of stories that we love to hear. The more dramatic, the better. Like, have you seen, like, those before and after workout Kind of like pictures. You're like, before I was like this. And then after I was like, whoa. And you just see it in a quick snippet. And you are just so impressed. But what you didn't get to watch is like the nine months of grueling training that goes in between. The times when they had to say no to eating fried chicken late at night. Like the times where they had to, you know, let go of sugar and their coffee. All that goes unsaid. You never get to see that part. You just want the before and the after. And that's kind of like what our generation loves to see over and over again. It's like quick, easy success. Those are the stories that we tend to like put on a pedestal, and we tend to look at that and see that as a norm. And in some ways we apply that also to our Christian walk as well. We're like, that's what my life should look like. Like, I used to be a wreck, and now I'm forever a victor, forever a champion. And nothing will ever shake me, and I will never go through trouble, and I'll never be discouraged, and I will never doubt or second-guess myself, and I will never feel like I don't know what's going on. Like, I feel like that's probably what Christian life should look like, and that is not what the Bible actually talks about. The Christian life, according to the Bible, is a lot more, maybe less flashy, but... At the same time, it's a very different kind of victory, a very different kind of witness and perseverance that we're called to live out as Christians. So today's message is titled The Witness of Perseverance. And before we dive in, let's just quickly take a moment just to pray. Father, I pray, God, that it would be your word that speaks to us today. It may not be the words from my mouth, it may not be the fruit of just my preparation, it may be the living, active. Word of God piercing through our hearts, transforming us from the inside out, washing us clean. I thank you, God, that there is inherent power in your Word, and that is what we're banking on today. We're not banking on a slick presentation. We're not banking on a good speaker. We're banking on the Word of God speaking into our lives, and so we're grateful for that, that you promise that your Word will bear fruit in our lives, and that is the role that your Holy Spirit and your written Word plays in our lives. We're grateful for that, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so before we actually jump back into the text, let me just give you a little bit of context as to when and how this text was written. A lot of times we kind of throw this verse around because it's a very familiar verse, right? It's like, yeah, I finished the race. Yeah, I fought the fight. Yeah, and it's like a feel-good kind of verse. But rarely do we think about where it was written. It was written from prison. It was written from prison, not the first time, that Apostle Paul was in prison, but the second time. And that is without counting all the shipwrecks and all the times they got, he got almost killed, and he was persecuted, and he was homeless, and he went hungry. All that aside, this is actually written from prison. This is a second imprisonment. This time it's in a cold dungeon, away from people that support him, away from people that will pat him on the back, away from people that will support his ministry. He is alone and chained like a common criminal, and he knows that his life is coming to a close. By this point, Apostle Paul has learned utter dependence on God. Because over and over again, he's been tested. Over and over, he's had to learn the Christian walk is not an easy walk. And so by this time, he finds himself in a second imprisonment, in a cold dungeon, chained like a common criminal. And by this time, man, if he has not grounded and anchored his worth, and his future, and his security In who God is, then he would have been massively shaken. But we see something so different. It's like words of defiance that are coming from a prison cell. That is the power of this message. It's not just actual words that are being written, but how it is written, where it is written, the cost at which it is written. So let me give you a little bit of backtrack kind of context as well. I kind of need to kind of give you a sweep through 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, it starts out... You know, really giving glory to God. So it says that we do something, but then actually God is the one who's behind all of it anyway. So in chapter 1, for example, he says in verse 6, Fan into flame the gift of God, but it is God who gives a spirit of love, power, self-discipline, instead of a spirit of timidity, right? Then in verse 8, it says, Join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So he says all these things that we ought to do as Christians, and yet he gives all the glory and all the credit, all the power to God. Verse 14, it says, guard the message of the gospel. And then he says, but do it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Then we go to chapter 2. He says, do your best to present yourself uh, to God as one approved. And then a few verses later, it says, but the Lord knows those who are his. So you see a trend in Paul. He says all these bold claims about who we ought to, how we ought to live as Christians. And yet he always connects us to the source. He doesn't let us, he doesn't give us the wiggle room to think, okay, I guess I need to get my act together. I need to try harder. I need to get on my disciplines. I need to just like grit my teeth and just try to do as best as I can and muster up my faith. He doesn't give you wiggle room for that. He always says, this is how you ought to live as a Christian, and here is a source. Don't feel like the source is going to be your strength. The source is going to be your willpower. This is going to be your ability to be held accountable by somebody else. It's always very clearly rooted in who God is. And so then we move into chapter three, where he brings in some actual bad news. If this would help. Okay. Uh Uh Okay. Wow. It would be great if it helped. Okay. All right. So, chapter three, by this time. He's giving us, delivering us bad news. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. So it's like looking pretty grim, right? Every benchmark... Of every good Christian you thought you could count on to keep you accountable is no longer there. The, the, the standard of what is good and what is moral, it will become very skewed in those end times. And then he continues on as if, you know, that wasn't enough. He says, there are also going to be treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. So he's giving us a very fair warning. He is saying all your points of reference. So you know you always have that friend who's like super holy? And you're like, you know, the friend who's super holy. And you're like, as long as I'm doing as well as they are, then I'm in pretty good shape, right? And you're always measuring yourself to that one friend. Or you also have that other kind of friend where you're like, as long as I'm not doing as badly as them, I'm like in a good place as well, right? So we have these points of reference that we tend to uphold just as much as we would uphold the word of God. So we tend to measure ourselves, not in regards to the word of God, but in regards to who's standing next to us, who our neighbor is. We look over to our side, and as long as we're, like, relatively ahead of the curve, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But this is the warning that he gives us in Chapter 3. He says all those people that you could look to as a sure kind of measurement of where you're at, those things will no longer be there. All those standards that you thought would not change, they're actually going to move. They're actually going to change. So you cannot you cannot think that that is going to keep you safe. You cannot think that that's going to be the surefire way to know whether you're doing well or you're doing poorly. All your points of reference about what you consider moral, what you consider good, what you consider just, it will all have deviated far from where it once was. So example, you guys live in the beach, right? So example, if you guys... Not right now, because it's winter, but in the summer. Imagine you guys went out for a swim, and you went really far out. And you look back to the shore, and you're like, okay, that red umbrella is what, where my stuff is and where my friends are. And as long as I can see that red umbrella, I'm probably still around the same vicinity, right? And then you play, and you you know, swim around, and then 30 minutes later, you realize that the umbrella was, like, all the way over there. And you realize, oh, man, like, I've drifted a long ways off. Imagine... Just to like, mess with your mind, a friend actually had taken that umbrella and put it elsewhere, right? <laughs> right? I don't know why they would do that, what kind of friends that would be. You guys need to look for new friends if that happens to you ever. But the point is, the point of reference that you thought would be there to guide you where you're at, that is going to move. So even though you look back and you see, oh, okay, I've only drifted 10 meters away, I've only drifted like, so far away, that is not going to be reliable anymore because that point of reference is also going to move. So in light of that, in light of that, you know, it's like pretty bad news, right? Like, you think things are going to be stable? Actually, they're only going to get worse, according to the Bible. Then he moves on to say, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. And he goes on and on and on. So Paul says, look... All the standards, all the points of reference that you thought would not change, they're actually going to become wickeder and wickeder. I don't even know if that's a word. Is that a word? Wickeder? More wicked? More wicked, right? More wicked, yes. Wickeder and wickeder. Um, Yes, so those things are actually going to shift. But you have seen a life that has been lived out differently. So you don't have that luxury of looking around you and feeling, oh, pretty good about yourself. He's saying, but you, you've seen the way that I live life. You've seen me get in prison. You've seen me get beaten up for, for preaching the gospel. You've seen me going hungry. You've seen me becoming homeless all for the sake of the gospel. You've seen a testimony that is very different. And so you do not have the luxury of measuring yourself against what other people are doing around you. Paul is saying, you've seen me live a very different kind of life. And he continues on to say, in fact... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. you will be persecuted, not just inconvenienced, not just, man, it's going to be kind of hard to witness in your workplace, not just like, man, they're going to give me a funny look if I kind of talk to them about coming to church. It's like straight up you're going to be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So things will get harder for you And on top of that, the standards will also get worse around you. This is really hard for us to imagine because it'll offend our sense of justice. It'll offend our sense of justice in a very profound way. So think with me. Imagine you have a sibling growing up. Who here has siblings? All right, the vast majority. I have two siblings. I have a younger brother and an older brother as well. And so growing up, we would always... Want to make sure that things are fair for all three of us. So imagine someone got a piece of candy. Like, there better be a piece of candy for me as well, right? Like, that sense of justice is like, how come he gets a piece of candy if I don't, right? On the opposite end, if I get punished for something, man, they better get punished as well, you know? If they were doing the same thing. That's your sense of justice. So imagine with me, you're getting punished for something that you're not doing it wrong you're doing it right you're getting punished even though you're doing something right and somebody who's actually doing something wrong right next to you is being celebrated is getting a promotion is you know gaining popularity is being exalted and trumpeted by people around you what would you feel <laughs> right it's not just that they're not getting punished like you are it's like i don't deserve punishment and i'm getting punished and someone who does deserve punishment actually is getting celebrated, is getting praised, is is receiving accolades. That is really, really, you know, gonna gonna offend us because we have an inherent sense of justice. Like this is not fair, and right, it is not fair. So now we're gonna take that hypothetical situation into something a little bit more serious. Imagine you break the law in a minor way, right? You speed a little bit, okay? Imagine you're speeding down the highway. And um, you see somebody speeding more than you, right? But you are the one who gets pulled over. And you're like, but officer, like, did you see that guy? I was going 15 over, but they're going like 25 over, right? And everything in you is going to be like, man, that's so unfair. Didn't you see what they just did? And the officer just lets them go, and then you get fined or, or you get you know, your license revoked or something like that. Don't do that, by the way. That's not a good example. I'm saying what not to do. But again, that is also going to play... On, like, on our hearts, on our minds, that's going to really register to us as like, man, that's so unfair. That is so unfair. That is not just. And that is exactly the point that Paul is trying to make. While people doing evil around you are seemingly going scot-free, everything in you that is getting punished will want justice. Everything in you will protest. That is foul play. That is not fair. That is not right. Who gets to decide? Everything in you is going to protest. And then Paul continues on to say, but as for you. Again, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Then he moves on to say, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul is asking Timothy to remain grounded in the word of God. Long after Paul is dead and gone. You've got to remember, this is probably one of his last epistles, last letters that he's writing as he's getting ready to die, in a cold dungeon, in a prison. And he wants to make sure that Timothy, one of his disciples that's also leading a church, that he's not going to be like, once he's gone, he's like, Well, now that Paul is gone, who do I look to as a standard? Who do I look to as an example? Who do I look to for guidance? Paul wants to make sure that Timothy's not looking just to him and his example. He's looking to the word of God. He goes straight to the source. He wants to make sure that that is established long after Paul stops writing and preaching, and teaching, long after he's dead and gone. He wants Timothy to make sure that he's anchored in the word of God. Long after Timothy goes through seasons where he goes from being championed to also being persecuted, when all the Christian fads and all the trendy things that have come and gone are long gone, Paul says, remember to remain grounded on the word of God. In other words, if you guys saw a trend here, he says, this is going to happen but you it's going to happen but you it's going to happen but you we've already gone through that three times and so his point isn't isn't just look things are going to be really bad so prepare yourself he's saying look things are around you are going to go from bad to worse but as for you stick to the gospel stick to the truth even if it doesn't get you more Instagram likes, more followers, more invitations. It doesn't matter. Stick to the truth even when they begin to hate you and they persecute you and they come to burn down your church. But as for you. He keeps saying that over and over and over again. He says, but as for you. And now here we come to our text, okay? That was all just build up to the text that we're actually going to read about, like we already read about today. This is the reason why. This is the reason why. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus. He's saying it doesn't matter who's looking at you. It doesn't matter who's keeping track of what you're doing. It doesn't matter who's measuring how many good works you do. The only person whose opinion matters is God. He wants to make sure that he's not swayed back and forth by what people around him say. In the presence of of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Translation, it is God who is taking note, and his opinion is the only one that matters, period. That needs to be set in your heart before even things get hard. You need to have resolved in your heart to not care about what people say about you, not care about how hard things get, it's going to be hard. It doesn't mean bypass your emotions. It doesn't mean like paint as if everything was okay. All it means is you better know the only source of approval that you need is God and God himself. It doesn't matter what your mama says, what your pastor says, what your friend says, what Instagram says, what, I don't know, CNN says. It doesn't matter how many people pat you in the back or talk about what a swell person you are. It doesn't Matter. It is God who will be the judge of a life well lived, and it is God whose opinion matters. Next, it says, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Translation, Jesus is not just going to be watching from afar. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and the kingdom that he inaugurated at his first coming will be consummated at his second coming. Jesus himself is going to come, and his kingdom is going to come with him all the injustice, all the wrongdoing, all the evil, evil that went unpunished, it will finally be justly dealt with. That is his business, not yours. That is what he's saying. It will finally be justly dealt with. And at the same time, all the things that seem so important at the time will vanish like smoke. All those things that you're like, man, I can't let this go, it's all going to vanish like smoke, and all the hidden works of faithfulness, all the hidden works of perseverance, all those things that went unrewarded, unapplauded, uncelebrated, unfeatured, those moments when you could have taken the easy way out and yet you chose God. Those things that were done in secret when you chose God against all odds, when you could have gone through the path of least resistance, yet you chose God when it costs you everything, those things will be rewarded. They will be presented before him like gold refined in the fire. Jesus is coming. His kingdom is coming with him. And in light of these things, Paul gives Timothy this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That means that no matter who's watching, no matter whether you got a fair warning or not, no matter if you got to prepare or not, no matter if you have a PowerPoint or a clicker or whatever or not, you better be prepared to stand for the gospel, live at the gospel, speak at the gospel, preach the gospel, and correct, rebuke, and encourage, not just with this passion, and reckless, kind of willy nilly, like I'm going to, re- you know, like trigger happy, I'm going to correct, rebuke everybody, but with great patience and careful instruction. The only way to do that is if you know the Word of God for yourself. It cannot be your opinion, it has to be rooted and grounded on the Word of God. Does that make sense? In light of all these things, this exhortation to preach the Word of God, it makes so much sense. And then he continues on to say, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It means that however many people are listening to you is no longer going to be a viable way to measure the validity of what you're saying. This is huge. This is huge, especially in our generation today where we live in a world where mass media has opened up the doors for anybody to trumpet their opinion however they want. And the only thing that gets pegged as truth is what gets retweeted the most, what gets the most likes and followers. It's like like the tyranny of mob mentality. Like it doesn't matter what it's grounded on anymore. As long as a lot of people follow you, it must be true. So this is a fair warning even for us today in a world where we live in the midst of mass media, Where, man, if something is said enough times by enough people or maybe by people that you respect or you look up to, that must be true. But that is not the case. We have to make sure that the standard isn't how many likes it gets. It isn't who said it. But, man, it better be grounded in the word of God. So with the pervasiveness of social media and what the vast majority defines as love is love and what the vast majority defines as truth is truth, And you get to, you know, in a very postmodern way, you get to define what is what. With this mob mentality at its height, where truth isn't defined by what you're grounded on, but how loudly you say it, this is a very, very good warning for all of us. And he continues on to say one more time, again, But you, but you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardships, Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry, but you. It is almost a very insensitive thing that Paul is saying by this point, right? He's repeated himself over and over again. He's basically saying what they're doing is none of your business. They're going to go astray. Don't be surprised. You're going to hear them saying things that don't make sense. Don't be surprised. A lot of people are going to be deceived. Don't be surprised. But you, you better darn well make sure that you're grounded in who God is and what his word says. It's almost very insensitive, right? Like here is Timothy is getting ready, you know, to be persecuted and all that. And he's like, doesn't matter what they do to you. You better just stay grounded in the gospel. And may that not deter you from doing what you've been called to do. Don't look around you. Don't measure yourself by people around you. You better stick to what the word says. and You better be, you know, satisfied in God's affirmation. That's it. If you get no one else affirming you, if no one else says, man, that was a great message. Man, like, man, like you seem to know the word really well. If nobody ever pays him a compliment, even then, you need to know that God's affirmation of you is more than you need. And that should be enough. Paul is saying people will turn. People will walk away. They will choose to selectively hear what they want to hear. They will choose to surround themselves with half-truths that make their guilt fade away temporarily, they will not want to hear the truth. They will not want their interests challenged. They will not want to hear what God says unless it conveniently lines up to what they already believe in. But you. But you. And then he continues on to say, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He's saying that there is a reward, even if you don't see it. Even if you can't touch it right now, there is a reward. There is a crown of righteousness. And that is a righteousness that is not born through times of ease and pleasant circumstances, but it's born through trials and persecutions and discouragement and frustrations and setbacks and falling into temptation and getting back up again and choosing God again and again, choosing what is good instead of what is easy over and over again. That is the kind of righteousness that is born from that kind of of context. And he says... It's not just for me that this crown of righteousness is ready for. It is also in store for all who have longed for his appearing. It means that for all those who have longed for his appearing, those who in their suffering are crying out, how long until you make things right? And those also who in their longing are crying out, how long until we are together again? Those whose hope isn't in the world, but in the one who is called the desire of the nations, the hope of creation, the one that even rocks cry out for, even for those, there's a crown of righteousness awaiting them. So I'm going to end with this. I prepared a few pictures just to give you a mental image of what a race looks like. I have never run a race in my entire life. So this is all hypothetical, okay? This is all thanks to Google, right? This is what the beginning of a marathon looks like. Everybody is smiling for the camera. Everybody's shoes are tied and their their shirts are dry and their faces, you know, are dry and shoes are shiny. You know, everything looks great. Everybody's in good spirits. Right? And as they start, man, the numbers are endless. Like it's a horde, a wall of people just moving towards the finish line, right? But let's take a look at what the finish line looks like. It's a little bit more like that, right? More realistically, this is what the finish line looks like. Look at this picture and tell me, where have all the crowds of runners gone, right? Where, where have all the shiny shoes and dry clothes and where are the smiles, you know? Where has all of that gone? Right? I'm definitely the guy in the middle, right, limping. I, th- I feel like that's how I'm going to make it to the finish line. You make it there like an hour later than everybody else probably, but you make it, right? This is what it looks like in the finish line. I'm going to show you another picture. This is the picture of the first person across the finish line, right? This looks a little bit nicer, right? But what I love about this picture isn't just that we get to see the winner and their time is pretty amazing, right? You know, that's crazy. A little over two hours, right? But I love this picture not just because of that, but also because it features the crowds awaiting at the finish line. That's what I love. They're all cheering for this one runner. Their hearts are pounding. They're like, dude, one more step. One more step. You can make it. You're almost there. And you see a crowd just cheering for them with every step that they get closer to the finish line. And that reminds me of this verse that we find also written by Paul in the book of Hebrews. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Paul is saying, here's a task. You throw off everything that hinders, meaning everything that slows you down. It's not everything that's stopping you, just everything that's slowing you down and also the sin that easily entangles. So all the things that trip you up, right? You let go of the things that are slowing you down, the things that are tripping you up, and run your heart out. The road has been marked out for us by the millions upon millions of saints that have run before us, those who are now holding their breath, watching you run this race. There is a crowd that is cheering for you to make it through that finish line. And Hebrews continues on to say, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So here's both the inspiration and the prize. Jesus Christ authored your faith. And he's perfecting your faith. And he ran this race with the fullness of joy in his heart, thinking of the bride that he secured in you and I, and the inheritance that waits for him on that day. And he right now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, at that finish line, waiting for you and I to make it. Cheering for you and I to make it. Not just at the beginning, but all the way to the very end. So this is why... We do not grow weary. We do not lose heart. The Lamb of God has overcome his defeated death and sin and shame, and he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will have his reward in us, in his bride, that isn't unequally yoked to him, but that through being tested and tried and through being purified by the fire and washed in the blood will give great glory and a great inheritance to the Son of God. So my hope is that today you didn't hear just my words, like the words of Susie Park, that you're hearing the words of Apostle Paul, right? So when we talk about the witness of perseverance, there's an inherent and implicit sense of resistance. Like if you don't have resistance, you don't really need to persevere. You just coast, right? But this whole passage in 2 Timothy about running the race, it being something that you need to fight for, something you need to battle for, you need to sacrifice for, something that you're going to pay the cost for, it means that there's going to be things like hardship, even things like failure that is temporary along the way. But those things are all going to end when you do cross that line and you are going to make it. The world has seen enough of passionate people that are passionate about that which interests them, that which benefits them. But the world cannot make sense of a people who, at the cost of their health, at the cost of their jobs, at the cost of their comfort and convenience, they choose a life that is sacrificial. Some, some people who, despite suffering, despite bearing the cost, will persevere in joy and in longing. The world has no category for that. They don't know what to do with the church if they see a church like that. A church that isn't just glory, hallelujah, when things are easy, but a church that in the midst of hardships is able to say, God, you're still enough. You're still my reward. You're still more than sufficient. I have everything I need in you. The world has no category for that. It will not be able to make sense of that kind of church. And it is my prayer that this word that is God-breathed and living and active would challenge and both encourage us to run this race. The Lord has done it and he has made a way for us as well. The prize is worth it. The suffering is temporary, and the time is short. We don't have a long life to live for the Lord. Let us just encourage one another when we see one another slowing down, when we see one another discouraged. Let us encourage one another and remind each other, man, this is so worth it. We can do this. We can run this race because Christ is with us. Christ has done everything that he needs to do for us to make it to the finish line. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us.